We live in a culture where performance is a high priority. It's what drives us to succeed, but it's also the thing that can make us insecure. Fear of failure and rejection can distort how you see yourself, your faith, and your identity in Christ. Today, Chris is here to help us strike down that fear and live according to the truth of God's love instead of listening to the lies of fear. Here's Chris. Well, good morning. And welcome. We are in week five, believe it or not, of our series called Fear Not. Uh, We are doing this series because our world is back crap crazy, and people are afraid of so many things, and uh, the Lord tells us over and over and over again to not be afraid, to fear not, because he's with us. And I think that's the thing we forget more than anything else. If you walk away from the series with one thing, don't forget God is with you. And, uh, and that changes everything. That changes the way we navigate fearful situations and good situations. It changes everything. I guess that's why we come together every weekend, to, to remind ourselves that God is with us indeed. Um, this week, we're dealing with the fear of failure. Uh, the fear of failure is something that affects so many people. Uh, in fact, um, a recent survey found that 31% of Americans deal with the fear of failure. That's twice as many Americans that deal, as, that deal with the, uh, the fear of ghosts. So, I mean, only 15% are afraid of ghosts, 31% afraid of failure, and I think the number is much higher than that, actually. I think there are a lot of us that deal subconsciously with the fear of failure. It informs the way we make decisions. We're just not paralyzed by it. And so I think this really, really has a large audience, this topic does. It may or may not apply to you, but chances are that it does. Now, the scientific name for the fear of failure is atichophobia. Let's say that together, atichophobia. Now, this is, a, this is the full-blown uh, phobia diagnosis, the, the atichophobia, afraid of failure. And, and really... Um, it comes from the Greek word atiches, which means unfortunate. So I'm afraid that something unfortunate is going to happen in my life. And that backs into, and really I think the fear of failure in general, backs into uh, a fear of rejection, a fear of abandonment. If I don't do well enough, if I am not successful, then I don't have value. And then the people who are supposed to love me, accept me, and, and be with me won't be because I'm not valuable anymore. And that's really where this comes from. Um, so, uh, and it affects, as I said, most of us. Now, here's the problem with this fear and every other fear. It robs us of the life that God created us for. See, when we're driven by fear emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, like we're not operating the way we're supposed to. We're, everything is, is dialed up here and, and, and we respond to things differently and we miss out on the good part of life. We miss out, some of us are, are so afraid that we're gonna fail at marriage that we'll pretend we're married so we don't have to get a divorce later. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll move in together, we'll do all the married stuff, but I don't want to fail at my marriage the way my parents did, so I'm just going to not get married. Where I don't wanna have kids because I don't want to fail at raising kids, so I'm just not gonna have kids. I'm afraid of what the world might be like. I'm afraid 
of whether or not I would be able to be successful with that. So I'm just not going to have kids. And you're missing out on like one of the main points of life. Because we're afraid. And ultimately, I think what happens, and, and you can see this, is we end up not comfortable in our own skin. That's really when, when you aren't comfortable in your own skin. There's probably a fear in there somewhere. You're unsettled because you're afraid of something, and this very well may be it. Now, how does this manifest? Well, it manifests in one of two ways. One way the fear of failure manifests is we give up. I'm just not going to try anything. You're, uh, you're under-motivated or unmotivated. Procrastination is your M.O., there's a bit of performance anxiety, low self-esteem, poor motivation. You'll even sabotage things before you get to a place where somebody could see whether you were successful at that or not because you are afraid you will fail and it's just not worth even trying or and or exposing yourself. You know, people say, oh, if, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. That's, I almost said a bad word. That's wrong. All right, it's, it's, you're not going to succeed at first on most things, you know? Uh, is it worth working and getting better at? Sure, but don't let it stop you from trying. And ultimately, that whole realm, that whole manifestation, the I give up, I'm not even going to try, is shrouded in shame because you're not living up to your potential, your purpose, who God created you to be because you are gripped with fear. And God doesn't want us living in fear. He wants you free. Now, the other way this manifests uh, is overcompensation. Like, I'm going to be more driven. I'm going to work harder than anyone else, and I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to work and work and work and work and work and work and go and go and go and go and go because I can't fail. And it's like somebody screaming in your ear, go, go, you're just living under quite a taskmaster. These, these folks, and maybe this is you, tend to be very high achieving, to push themselves, not because they're motivated to do whatever the thing is, but because they don't wanna fail. Oftentimes, they'll surround themselves with what our culture considers the symbols of success so nobody can question whether they're successful or not, whether that's cars or clothes or whatever else we put around ourselves to make people think that we're not a failure. And the more afraid you are, the more you surround yourself with those things. Add to that in our culture, we live in a culture where we are marketed to over and over and over again, and the message that's marketed to us, the message that we hear 1,000, 10,000 times a day is whatever you have, it isn't enough. Whoever you are, it isn't enough. You need to buy this. You need to buy that. You need to sign up for this thing. You need to do this. And it just pushes it. It just stokes the fires. And then, well, of course, add social media to that. Everybody else's kids are smarter and better looking than yours. Their vacations are better. Their job's better. They seem better. I'm just going to stay right here. The fear of failure. Guys, we're set up to just be either driven or wrecked by it. Well, Jesus 
in Luke chapter 10 comes into a situation where I think this is at play and really gives us some insight into this. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, if you don't, bring it next week. If you do, open up to Luke chapter 10. It's in the new, beginning of the New Testament, and there is an index in the front of your Bible that God put there just so you can find Luke chapter 10. Verse 38 is where we'll start. Jesus had lots of friends. He had his 12 disciples, but he had friends. He had people that he just loved to spend time with. And three of those people uh, were Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. There were two sisters and a brother. They lived in a town called Bethany, right outside of West Liberty. No, Bethany, (laughs) right outside of Jerusalem. And so Jesus would go to Jerusalem a lot. And whenever he would come into Jerusalem, he would stop at Bethany and he'd visit with his friends. And he loved these guys. Lazarus was the guy he, wrote, he brought back from the dead right before he was crucified. But he, he loved these guys. They were close to him. And uh, we get a little insight. They show up a few times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And uh, one of the things that we understand about Mary and Martha is that they weren't married. And as far as we can tell, they didn't have any children. It was two sisters who were older and a brother who lived together. Now, the problem with that is that in their culture, and I'm not saying this is right, it's just the way first century Judaism was and really the world at large, women found their value and their worth, their success in who their husband was, in his position in the community, and the children that she could provide for them or for him, right? Martha and Mary didn't have any of that. Like, like the high watermarks of, of success in their culture, they missed all of that. And so, that's the background. Now, there was something that Martha could be successful at. Martha was one of those hospitality people. How many hospitality people do we have in the house? Like you love having people over, you love preparing meals, all that. None, excellent. All right, next sermon series. Okay, so Martha Martha loved that. She loved having people over. She loved preparing meals. She loved like making everybody feel at home. And so whenever Jesus and the guys would come into town, Martha was like, come on over, we're gonna have dinner. It's gonna be great. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. All right, there's so much here to unpack. So Jesus and the guys come in, most likely Lazarus. He's not mentioned here, but we know he's part of the household. He's probably in the living room. Mary is sitting next to Jesus' feet. Jesus has got the, the comfortable chair, you know, in the living room. He's, he's sitting back in the comfortable chair, and they're, they're talking and telling stories and laughing, and everybody's having this great fellowship. And Mary or Martha's back in the kitchen working like crazy. Probably hearing this voice in her head like, you know, the meat's got to be perfect. we got to get the lamb just right. Don't forget to mash the potatoes. There can't be lumps. 
Oh, and they need drinks, and she can't keep up. And all of a sudden, she realizes that the meat's going to be overcooked, that the potatoes are going to be lumpy, and that nobody's getting the drinks. And Mary's sitting at his feet, and she is starting to realize she is going to fail at the thing that she finds success and purpose and meaning in. And she gets all amped up. Ever been there? Say yes. All right, yeah. I mean, a holiday meal, baby. (laughs) Often comes out at holiday meals for some reason. She's getting all amped up. And to the point that she snaps and she goes out in front of this room full of people, the disciples, her brother, her sister, Jesus, don't you care? I just say that out loud. (laughs) Like, oh, I just said that out loud. Yeah, she's just all, everything's up here. Don't you care? She has what I call her Martha moment. Martha's a good person. It was a bad day. But that's what the fear, or the the fear, the failure does to us, isn't it? We get worked up, and we get worked up, and we'll snap. We'll like, we'll like lose it. Jesus diffuses the situation. In verse 41, he says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. If you have your Bible open, underline or highlight that that phrase, you're worried and upset about many things. I think that characterizes our world today. He says, but few things are needed, or indeed only one, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Let me bring you back down, Martha. Now, this is not an excuse for lazy relatives. I just want to be clear about that. You know, every, every Sunday morning, we have people who gather here Uh, and serve, set up children's ministry, set up other stuff, hopefully not out of a fear of failure or trying to earn acceptance, but because they love to serve, and that's good. That's a good thing. We're supposed to be servants. It's not an excuse for laziness, but this is a picture of what happens when we're driven by fear. We kind of go crazy inside. Martha's value is tied up in her hospitality success, and that was in peril. She loved Jesus, but she thought Jesus' acceptance was predicated on her ability to make the perfect mashed potatoes and lamb. And it wasn't. Jesus much would have much rather had spent time with her and had lumpy potatoes. Well, that could be a point. You ought to write that down. All right. As Mary found peace sitting at the feet of Jesus, have you ever felt like Martha? I have, and I'm guessing that you probably have too. So the question then for today is, how do we overcome the fear of failure, rejection, abandonment? How do we overcome this fear so that it doesn't drive us to paralysis and it doesn't drive us to overachieving to the point of being neurotic? How do we we get through this? Because there's a freedom in the middle there that God has for every single one of us. And I have four things for you to remember today. And if you're looking for an action item, it's to remember these things. Remind yourself, read them every day this week, memorize these points. Because I think when we get into trouble is when we forget. So, four things to remember. First thing is this. Are you ready? Got your pens out? All right. Failure isn't fatal, with the exception of skydiving, bungee jumping, and base jumping. 
All right, your chute doesn't open, your bungee cord breaks, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's fatal. But other than that, failure does not kill us. Like we think on the other side of failure is death. It's not. It doesn't kill us. Did you know Abraham Lincoln didn't succeed at anything that we're aware of until after he was 40 years old? That his presidency was riddled with failures. If you study the Civil War, oh my gosh, he couldn't pick a general to save his life. And yet he is known as one of the greatest presidents of all times. Walt Disney was fired from his first job for lack of imagination and no good ideas. He was. He started several businesses before what we know of as the Disney Corporation that went into bankruptcy. Walt Disney. Failure is not fatal. Number two, memorize that, except skydiving, bungee jumping, and base jumping. Number two, failure is not futile. Failure is not futile. Like there is a lot to be learned in failure. It's one of life's great teachers if we're not afraid of it. If we're afraid of it, we're not going to learn anything because we're all amped up and our adrenaline's up here and everything else. But if we can take a deep breath and go, okay, what did I learn in that situation? My goodness, you will grow and you'll be more successful the next time you try. It is not futile. Thomas Edison, the man who invented the electric light bulb. So before Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb, we lit our world with candles and kerosene lamps. Can you even imagine candles and kerosene lamps? But he had this picture in his head of a light bulb. Uh, I don't even know where it came from, how he got this in his head, but if he could run currents, uh, current through a filament, somehow he would be able to light up that bulb and light up the world, and the rest is history. One of the most transforming inventions in the history of the world. He failed, and you can go do, I did some research on the internet because I've heard everything from a thousand times, a thousand failed experiments to 10,000. Some say 2,774 times, others say 6,000 times. I don't care, a thousand times is a lot of times. Can we agree on that? Even if it's on the low end. And he would try it and it would blow up and he would try it and the filament would burn out and he would try it and it wouldn't work and he would try it and it wouldn't work. And he's famous for saying this because eventually it did work. He said, I have not failed 10,000 times I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. Failure's not futile, it's a learning opportunity. And if we can reframe the way we look at it, it can inform and guide our life in so many ways and set us up to win down the road. So many times people will come to me and like, well, I listened to your sermon and I, I tried it and it didn't work. And I, and I, or, or I've been trying to, you know, trying to get a business off the ground or save my marriage or whatever, and I've tried everything. And I'm like, really? You tried everything? Did you try a thousand things? Nobody has ever tried a thousand things, by the way. Did you try a hundred things? No. Twenty? Uh-uh. I've tried two things. Everything. Really? 
No, you got discouraged and quit. You're afraid to fail. Keep trying because you're going to learn and learn as you go. Number three, failure is not final. Failure is not final. How many people would say to a baby that was learning to walk after their third, fourth, fifth, tenth, fifteenth, thirtieth attempt when they fall on their bottom, well, clearly you should just stay on the ground. You're not a walker. (laughs) We don't do that because we're all going to walk eventually, right? They're going to learn. Get up and walk again. It's not final. The only time it's final is if we sit there on our butt and believe that lie. Get up and keep moving. Failure's not final. And fourth, failure won't get you kicked out of God's family. Failure won't get you kicked out of God's family. I think some of us are riddled with perfectionism because we think somehow God won't love us or accept us or he'll abandon us if we fail or fall short. He doesn't do that. King David was probably the most, one of the most famous people in all of human history, certainly in the history of Israel. He was their great king. They still tell stories about David. We still tell stories about David to this day. David and Goliath is an analogy that we use daily in our culture, thousands and thousands of years later. David was a hero, but David had some colossal failures. At one point, David was, was not, his thinking wasn't right. He, he, he has this, this moment of weakness, and he ends up having an adulterous affair with one of his friend's wives. Is that a failure? Say yes. Ends up getting her pregnant. Well, he tries to cover it up, tries to have his friend come home because he's off at war, nothing's working out, so eventually... Out of desperation, he has his friend killed in battle. It's a crappy friend. Is that a failure? Is that a moral failure? Absolutely. I mean, how does it get worse than adultery and murder? David, his family was a wreck. You know, he leads this kingdom gloriously, and that his family's a wreck. At one point, one of his sons is, has got this out-of-control thought life fantasizing about his sister. And eventually, he acts on it and rapes his sister, because that's what happens when we have an out-of-control fantasy life, by the way, folks. We will eventually act on it. And he does. And David does nothing. Well, one of her other brothers is so infuriated by the fact that there's no justice for his sister, that this has been allowed to stand, that his father has done nothing, and it was his job to do something. But David's failing at leading his family, and so he takes matters into his own hand and kills his brother. And then over time, he leads a coup and runs his father, David, out of town and humiliates the entire family in the process, the entire nation. And eventually, in retaking the kingdom, some of David's men killed this other son. Is this a failure? Because David didn't lead his family well in this season. Absolutely. And yet, Scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. 
stunning. Does God approve of those failures? No. But does he kick David out of the family because of the failures? No. Because David always comes back and goes, oh, God, what have I done? Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, you are God. You love me and I love you. And David gives us some great insight in Psalm 138 if you, or 139. If you have a Bible, again, if you had one before, you have one now, open up to one, Psalm 139. It's in the middle of the Bible. It's spelled P-S-A-L-M. I wouldn't have spelled it that way because I'm dyslexic, but they did. So <clears throat> here we go. David writes this. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. I could add in here, just kind of add living. You saw that thing with Bathsheba. You saw what I did to Uriah. You saw what happened with my family. You know all of it. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say, the mistakes I will make. And then in verse five, he says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. In other words, Lord, you've seen it all, past, present, and future. You've seen all my failings. And yet you hem me in. You're before me, behind me. Your hand is upon me. You haven't gone anywhere. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. God didn't go anywhere. Go ahead and write this down. God knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. There's nothing about you that God doesn't know. He knows everything about you, and he loves you passionately. Warts, pimples, failures, successes, all of it. He knows you better than you know you, and he loves you. Verse 7, David goes on. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, oh, no, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David's like, there's nowhere I can go where you're not, God. You can write this down. This is something to remember. Wherever you go, I think the, the old saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, God is there too. Wherever you go, God is there too. In the depths of depression, in a fearful situation, in that class that you failed, or that project that you blew at work, in the business that fell apart, in the job that you lost, in the marriage that imploded. Even in your sin, God is there too. Apostle Paul puts this in his own words in Romans 8.38. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers 
neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Wherever we go, he is there too. And this is why scripture says, almost every time it says, don't be afraid, fear not, it says, I am with you. We're afraid, I think, at the end of the day, as followers of God who wrestle with the fear of failure, we're afraid that somehow God will reject us if we don't measure up, if we fall short, if we fail in some way. That is not truth. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never, what, leave you or forsake you. Jesus, before he left this earth, he was leaving to go to heaven. He was going to send his spirit back to be with us. And the last thing he tells his disciples, the last word he utters is this in Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The spirit of God is with us. He's with you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what failure you have dealt with or dealing with or will deal with in the future, God loves you. He is with you. He is not going anywhere. Well, in verse 13, we're back to Psalm 139. He says this, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He's talking about himself, the, a human being. We're created and knit together by God. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the d- days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is mind-blowing. But write this down. God planned you. He dreamed about you before your parents planned you or didn't plan you. He had a plan. And it was you. He dreamed of you, and he created you cell by cell. He knit you together. And yes, you will make mistakes, but you are not a mistake. God made you with a plan and a purpose for your life. And that's not going to change. He will never reject you for failure. You were made on purpose for a purpose. In Ephesians 2.10, the apostle Paul writes these words. He said, for we are God's handiwork. God 
made us. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And I love the last part. Usually it gets dropped or overlooked or, you know, just read by it real fast. Which God created in, in advance for us to do. You know why I like that part? Because we don't have to make it happen. We don't have to strive and, and drive and I got to... He's got it all set up for you. You just got to walk into it. You just got to walk with him. He'll lead you into what he's got set up ahead of time. And this is great purpose and great opportunity and great meaning. And he's cheering for us along the way. He's cheering for you. He's a good father. Some of us have got bad fathers and has wrecked your perception of who God is. But he's a good father. He's a good father. He loves you. He's for you. He's cheering for you. My daughter, Josie, loves theater. So she does community theater and, and plays out at her school and stuff. And she works so hard to memorize the lines and learn the songs. And, and inevitably, after a performance, we'll get together. And she's like, oh, well, I missed that line, or I didn't hit that note, or this could have been better. I'm like, it was wonderful, because I'm unbiased. I don't care. I don't care that you guys missed two pages of the script. It was fantastic. Way to go. My son Deuce likes to make movies. And, uh, you know, does he have some things to learn? Yes. Can he tighten some things up? Probably. But I don't care. I, again, unbiasedly think he's fantastic because I'm his dad. God is your dad. He's cheering you on. He's got opportunities set up for you. He wants you to be comfortable in your own skin, to be able to take a deep breath and enjoy the fact that you were created on purpose, for a purpose, that you are not a mistake. And that even though you will make mistakes, and that's guaranteed, he's not going anywhere. He's going to pick you up, dust you off, put you back on that bike, and we're going to go for it again. God doesn't reject us. But he does allow us to reject him, which is stunning. God created us to be in a relationship with him to love him back. And if he forced us to love him back, then that wouldn't be love, would it? And so he allows us to reject him. We call that sin. In the biggest sense, that's what sin is. It's us turning our back on God and walking in the other direction and going, thank you very much. I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to do it my way. And we walk this way. And that has eternal consequences. God allows us to do that, breaks his heart when we do. But he wants us to live in relationship with him, in a loving relationship with him. We can choose to abandon him. He doesn't abandon us, but we can choose to abandon him. And there are eternal consequences in heaven and hell are in the balance. Now, I know there are some of us who are like, well, that's what I've done. That's how I've failed. That's a big one. But the good news is, if you're still breathing air, you can come home. You can turn around and go this way 
towards God. The Bible calls that repentance. It's just owning what you've done. It's like King David. I've screwed up colossally. I've been going the wrong way, but I'm turning around and I'm coming home to you, Lord. And there are some of us who need to do that today. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. David's great, 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 multiple times over great-grandson who lived a perfect life and died on a cross because the payment for our sin was death. And he wanted us to have life. So he paid the death himself. That if we place our faith in him, if we turn around and come home, he'll greet us with open arms. He'll run to us. See, that failure is not final either if you turn around and come home. Will you come back to him today? There are some of us who need to have a conversation right now in the middle of this sermon with God and just say something along the lines of, God, I've, I've blown it, and I want you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your presence in my life. I need you to take this mess I've made and turn it into something magnificent. You know, most of my life, I've lived on the driven side of the fear of failure. When I was in uh, kindergarten, my, my kindergarten teacher called my parents into school for the parent-teacher conference and said, look, uh, Chris is not learning his ABCs. He's not learning how to read. He's falling behind in everything. Uh, don't plan on him graduating from the sixth grade, let alone high school. Well, over the course of the next two years, my parents worked on figuring out what the heck was going on because they had this sense that I wasn't dumb, but I certainly wasn't learning anything. They blamed the teacher. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> although I think they're still mad at that teacher. And so um, came to find out that I had a condition called dyslexia. And I mix letters up, and my brain just learns differently than, than your average person learns. Uh, and, uh, and so they figured out that there were special, special ways to teach, and they got me into a special class. And I started working on that in the second and third grade. I didn't read a book. I didn't, didn't read anything until the end of the third grade. I couldn't read until the end of the third grade. I remember the book. It was called The Blue Dog. It was very compelling. It was a really good read. <clears throat> but once we figured out what was going on, my parents pulled me in, and, and, uh, and I would spend my afternoons. I'd come home from school, and we had this dining room table, and there's a window right here, and out on the other side of the window is this big field that was our backyard. It's where all the kids from the neighborhood would come to play. And they'd play football and frisbee and tag and ride their bikes and everything. And I would sit at the dining room table in tears, learning how to read, learning how to, to get past this dyslexia thing. And I remember there are moments, I mean, just, you know how when you're that age, you have these flashes of memory, these flashes of memory of laying on the floor under the table, banging my fists and kicking 
And just like, it was awful. It was awful. And, and, and I learned a lesson in the midst of all of that because I eventually did learn to read. By the sixth grade, I was ahead of all my, my counterparts in, in school. I worked really hard to get there, but I learned that if you want to get ahead, if you want to be successful, if you don't want to fail and be perceived as dumb, then you work five times, ten times harder than everybody else. And yes, it's miserable. And yes, you miss out on some things, but that's what you do. By the time I got to high school, things had eased up a little bit. I was I was ahead, high school was easy. For the first time in my academic career, I felt like I wasn't going to fail. And I didn't have to work in every spare moment to do that. Not that I didn't have hard classes. I mean, I remember Ms. Banco's anatomy and physiology class. I worked really hard in that class. But by and large, it was it was pretty easy getting through high school. And, and for me, from high school through halfway through my second year of college, I wasn't afraid. And I had so much fun. I mean, I, high school was a blast. College, got, got involved in all kinds of things. I had a great group of friends. We had campfires on Wednesday nights by the river and the outdoor club and got arrested jumping freight trains. It was awesome. <laughs> Loved it. Don't do that, kids. Um, then my second semester of my sophomore year, I had to catch up on some classes because I was having so much fun the first three semesters. And so I took 21 credit hours. And by the time you get to just a little free, free uh, information for people who haven't made the college yet, by the second semester of your sophomore year, college starts to get challenging. And... Um, And I found myself overwhelmed, and I found that taskmaster of fear rising up inside of me. And I didn't have a dining room table to sit at, but I found a table in the library, and I was there every spare minute. And what I found is that if I would work 10 times harder than everybody else, if I would be driven, then I wouldn't fail, and I might even succeed. And that taskmaster stayed with me through that semester. And then I transferred up to New York, to State University of New York up there, and that was even more difficult because now we're into the higher, higher classes. And I remember sitting at my desk in my apartment on the weekends where something that should have taken me a couple hours to complete took me all weekend to complete while my friends were out cross-country skiing and doing other things that they do in the North. And, and I was miserable and I was lonely, and I felt like I was wasting time, and I was sad, and yet I worked all the time. Fear is a lousy master, isn't it? It's inefficient. We, we, we end up fighting against the forces we should be riding. We, we end up breaking ourselves against the thing that we're afraid of. Now, I, I have no people like me. Some of you are like me. I had conversations where people have said, look, my fear of failure is my secret to success. Like, if I didn't have this fear of failure, I wouldn't work so hard. I wouldn't be as successful as I am. 
But at what cost? At what cost? Fear kills. It kills creativity. It kills flow. It kills effectiveness. It kills your heart. It kills relationships. I got out of school and eventually went to uh, work for a company teaching wilderness emergency medicine classes, two-week-long wilderness first responder classes. And I was kind of new to the job, and I was afraid of failure. And uh, I, had, I was familiar with the topic. I'd, I'd studied it and, uh, and all that. But this one particular class, I was, I was teaching at a camp for two weeks. They were all college students we were teaching. And, and so I'm teaching a college class, and uh, the two instructors I, were, I was working with were masters. I mean, they had taught probably 100 of these classes. They knew the material. They knew how to teach it. They knew the, all the techniques. And I didn't. I was still learning how to teach at that point. And I remember one particular, one particular topic that I was teaching. I had 50 minutes to teach it. And I stood up and I taught it. And it was fine. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't like, didn't suck too bad. But compared to those guys, I look like an idiot. I went back to my, my room where I was staying and I just broke down. I had my Martha moment. What if they see me as a failure? And I just lost it. Ever been there? Say yes. Over time, I recovered mostly, but I worked hard at everything I did, including church work work eventually. When I first started to work at the church, I was working 80 hours a week, newly married. My wife hated that, didn't you, dear? you got to work harder than everybody else, which eventually led to, uh, to my health going. My immune system started to suffer. My adrenal glands started to give out on me. I ended up with Lyme disease, adrenal fatigue. And in his mercy, God brought me to my knees such that I couldn't work harder than everybody else. I didn't have anything to give. It was all gone. I thank him for that. And you know what I learned in the midst of all that? That God loves me. And that I'm valuable even when I can't do anything. That my value has nothing to do with my ability to succeed or the failures that I run into. And that, and this is really good, my success has more to do with him than it does me. Like if I trust him and cooperate with him, he's got it. I can let him carry the load. And if I can relax a little bit and join him in what he's doing, I can accomplish so much more. And lastly, my identity is not found in my accomplishment. It's found in my sonship. not what I do, it's who, whose I am. Guys, so many of us live with this fear. 
either paralyzed by it, afraid to try, sitting on the sidelines in shame and procrastination and indecisiveness and anxiety and powerlessness, or driven by it. Driven to please God or really please maybe that unpleasable critical parent that you grew up with that you just want to hear them say you did okay, you're good, you're all right. And God's cheering you on the whole time. He doesn't want us striving. For those of us that are driven, you feel like, well, if I stop, then the whole world's going to come crashing down. It's not. And if it does, that's exactly what needs to happen. And there's something even better on the other side of that. Here's the problem. Either way, you're not free. And Jesus came to set you free. In here. God wants us free. He wants you to know how much he loves you. And he wants you to know how much he values you. He wants you to know that everything about you, he already knows, and he loves you anyway. He wants you to know that wherever you go, he's there too. And he's not going to leave you. And he wants you to know that he dreamed about you before you were ever made. And he's got dreams for you if you'll join with him in accomplishing them. And if you can rest in that, my friends, you can find peace. And that's his prayer for you. When he left his disciples, he said, my peace I give you, peace. And that peace will set you free to be everything he created you to be because you'll get more done. You will walk into more opportunities when you're free. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would just minister to us now as we prepare to sing and as we sing these songs. God, that you would do work that only you can do in our hearts. God, I pray that you would, would just pour out your healing upon us. God, I pray that you would, would affirm your love and delight in us, even in our imperfections. And that, Lord, we would experience you. So, Holy Spirit, come. Fill this place. Speak to our hearts. And do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.